everybody, this is Charles Hain here with the No Film School podcast for the week of April 22nd, 2021. I'm here with Editor-in-Chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. And we are going to be talking about, we've got not one but two artificial intelligence stories this week. One, can artificial intelligence write an Oscar-winning movie or add scenes to it? And then we've also got, we're going to be wrapping up with, can artificial intelligence write the score for a movie? In between, we're going to be talking about (laughs) how we think about should we add ads to old movies? And I have a controversial take on this. And on top of that, we're going to be talking about a really great Ask No Film School about can a first script be a first movie? All that this week on the No Film School podcast. Our top story, we're going to be bookending with artificial intelligence this week. The first thing we're going to be talking about this week is, is artificial intelligence any good at writing a screenplay? And this is a really interesting one. So some filmmakers who are, uh, and I, I like this, I'm not criticizing when I say this, some filmmakers who are looking to launch their careers and are finding creative ways to get attention, which I respect, had AI write a short film that is some new scenes from the very popular and actually absolutely amazing, wonderful film, Lady Bird, that if you haven't seen, you should see Lady Bird is solid. And so they fed it, the script for Lady Bird, the, the AI they're using is OpenAI GPT-3, which is like far superior to GPT-2. Like, let's be honest, let's be real, big leap forward. <laughs> and um, it's a text-in, text-out interface. They put in a script and it created more. And so it created some new scenes for Lady Bird. And then these filmmakers went out and shot the scenes. Like before we get to the quality of the scenes themselves, like none of our listeners are going to get to use this gimmick because this gimmick has been done. But, you know, everybody needs to find a way to like get attention for themselves and and get out there and and get people to notice them. I mean, famously, that guy who did the uh, amazing drone shot of that bowling alley, I am sh- I guarantee you that has gotten him work. The New York Times did an article about it where they've had big Hollywood filmmakers talking about it. like, And it was just a dude drawing a drone, flying a drone through a bowling alley, but it's an amazing shot and it broke out. And now I'm sure there's 50 drone pilots doing like a drone flies around a donut shop, a drone flies around. And, you know, you got to be the first one in with the angle, but like this should get these people meetings um, because it's a good angle where it's like what they do with, from there is the real exactly will always be what separates. This is probably a you probably don't say this anymore, but the men from the boys, the, the adults I mean, we from need the a new, I, I <laughs> need a new on, one. Yeah, yeah. Because I use <laughs> like instead of one man band, I've been saying one mule team for a couple of know, years because yeah, it's got a nice a western one. vibe to it. So we need one that's like that's the one that's going to separate the. Well, the wheat from the chaff, right? Like that's the. Oh, good. That's a. You're from the Midwest. I like. I'm it. so I like, from the Midwest. I like that though, because it also has a Western vibe. Moving on, so there's this ladybird scene, and I have to commend like so many of these little things that come up. Like you'll see, like I'm trying to think of one that's not actually one I've hated, but like I, you know, you'll see these things sometime of like. I did, you know, what are the hallmarks of this filmmaker style? We did a a film that's riffing on it. And like, they're so poorly made sometimes where you're like, did you put in any effort? You're not actually riffing on that person's style. It's just like, whatever. Whereas this one, like they cast people, 
who are actually pretty okay. And they, they shot at high school locations and they did some production design and like, it's not a perfect match. And like, obviously Sorcy Ronan is like Sorcy Ronan. So the actress playing Lady Bird is never going to live up to Sorcy Ronan because that's Sorcy Ronan, but they put some real effort in. They actually did what they could to try and do something slick and polished and real. And I have tremendous respect for it. Yeah, I all I could think when I saw it, I was just, you know, hearkened back to Keaton Patty writing the first time I discovered it, I think was, you know, I'm looking at the tweet back in 2018. I forced a bot to watch a thousand hours of Olive Garden commercials and then asked it to write an Olive Garden commercial of its own. And here's the first page. And when I saw this in 2018, before I considered if it was real or not, before anything, when I read this thing, I laughed so hard because it was like it just like absolutely nailed it for me it was hilarious and i didn't care if it was real or not and obviously that became a meme and i think he even wrote a book called like the i forced a bot to watch a thousand hours or something because the format continued and he continued to do it in places and it and it and it um wore out but god that was funny to me and so as soon as i see this stuff i'm always that that's where my mind goes and it looks like these guys, the, the story on No Film School is by one of them, Jacob Vaus, I think I'm pronouncing it correctly, and Eli Weiss. The thing that's cool about this is that they've also talked about other versions of it, like a new song for Hamilton, a new Eminem song, a Dr. Seuss novel. <laughs> I think there's something really interesting about seeing what you can program an AI to create if you give it enough data about, you know, Here's where I get fascinated by this topic. Have we all written enough emails and te- and slacks and texts and whatever else that at some point we could create good AI replacements for ourselves that could run an algorithm and answer questions or respond to emails or be like a virtual assistant or like a virtual replacement or God knows where that goes. But that has always fascinated me. And so when I think about it in terms of a movie, it's interesting, but I also think about it in terms of a human being. Yeah, I, I, it gives me the heebie-jeebies to think about like what are the jobs that my daughter is going to have that are not going to be like that an AI can't do in the future. So I'm going to focus just back on Lady Bird because ooh, does that give me the like? <laughs> like what are what are what are we going to do in the future that a robot can't do instead? However, looking at the actual short, I do want to say that I think there are interesting lessons there in terms of screenwriting. Like you watch the short. And there is like sort of a pleasant gloss of seeming like a, a deleted scene from Lady Bird. But it does sort of float along. And this is no criticism of the filmmakers because, again, I think it, it, it a good conceit and they clearly put in a lot of effort. When you say filmmakers, are you lumping in this the AI into that group? Well, no, I'm actually going to criticize the AI. <laughs> Just the guys. Okay, okay. Well, the I mean, AI is a filmmaker. The AI has rights, perhaps, as a creative uh, force. Do you think the AI is about to get their feelings hurt when I am trashing on their writing? <laughs> no, you're right. I mean, he should automatically have joined the WGA in this case because his work is getting it's it's work. Let's not gender the AI unnecessarily. It is such a great example of the difference between like what we're quickly going to get to with AI is that sort of perfunctory, you know, there's already AIs writing basic news stories that like take sports scores and turn it into a basic story for local news and stuff. And like, we are going to get to the point where like passable 
material is really fast to generate with an AI. And like you can see with Ladybird, like the, or this Ladybird written by AI, like the beginnings of like it sort of picks up the patois quite easily of of Ladybird and it like has sort of like relevant things that are sort of floating around the edges of it. And you're like, oh, this is actually sort of an interesting example, but it completely lacks like coherence or the spark of life. <laughs> this is the fun part. And you're like, yeah. oh, like, you know, I, I, I am not worried about creative writing disappearing anytime soon because I think coherence is going to be really hard for an AI. Yeah, I think that the scarier, if you want to get gloomier or which I guess is my job in this segment, but like the scarier thing is, will there be a way to output like a solid plot from an AI? Will you be able to request an AI to put together a package on a movie creatively? Like, you know, a casting suggestion, like where there is this, there are places where human being spontaneity is necessary. There may be places where a, a um, sophisticated AI can replace some of what people do. Um, and I think that the the thing that becomes where we need a human, like you said, the jobs the human has to do will be emerge in that someone will be like, oh, I'm going to write a script without the AI assist. Like, are we, let's jump forward to no film school 2075. What, I, what I'm thinking is that there will be somebody who's like, they wrote a script without any AI assist. Like, whoa, crazy. Just like, you know, shooting on film. Or maybe what if it was like shooting on, I don't know, Super 8 and hand splicing it. You know what I mean? Like there there will be a place where somebody gets super weird and goes and goes at it raw like that. And everyone will want to see it. Just like I get excited when I see celluloid. Well, it's also these are not new debates, right? Like in 1977 in Star Wars, there's a whole thing about turning about Luke turning off the assisting mm-hmm. computer so that he can because he shot Womp Rats can can target without the assistance of the computer. So this debate about where we stop and and where we start is not a new debate. And it is a debate that will continue to evolve. I mean, I could certainly see a situation where within 10 years, and if I was like more interested in tech than in creativity, I would try and start this company where you do an elaborate outline, which is like one thing many screenwriters do before they write, where you do an elaborate outline and you push a button and the script is generated. Yeah, for sure. And then you mu- and then you massage it because a lot of it won't make sense. <laughs> yeah, like actually we would call it we would call this app first draft instead of final draft. It's first draft. Oh, that's You so put in good. your outline and you, you get go, your first draft go delivered to you right now. Here's what here's what I love about it though. This is my hacky joke. That draft like at first the idea would be like you have to clean it up but then it would be like eh, why don't you just try sending that to your manager anyway and then you you know because your manager never reads anything they get that draft and they're like oh it's great we love it and like eventually it goes down far than far enough down the line without anybody really paying attention to what was in those scenes because you know that happens because it's like once names are attached etc etc they're like what are we shooting today and then you find out after the movie's done that there were entire sections of the script that no one read or no one liked. So I actually have a so and if anybody out in the No Film School universe wants to work on this, I'd, I'd be curious to figuring out how to build this. I actually think this is I have a proposal for what is a more likely next iteration for this, and it's not that. Although I do agree that like if that happens, people won't read the first drafts. 
Or basically, you'll end up changing, like your manager will send it to their assistant to read it. And manager's assistants will get better at cleaning up the artifacts of AI. Mm, like, that could be They'll the be job, skimming through actually, yeah. and they'll just be like, oh, that seems AI garbage. Like that wasn't, you know, whatever. <laughs> like that was just like random text that got generated or that's a glitch. Like the same way that like when you work in post, you get used to, like if you work in post long enough, you sort of tune out green screenshots because you see them in the edit and you're like, oh, I know we're going to do the composite later. I'm just watching. But like you can't show that to a normal human because normal humans are like, why is there a green screen in that shot? Are you going to clean that up? I remember once right. sending to a client something. It was a 30-second spot. It was all green screen. We had done all of the composites but one. And I sent the clients the thing saying, hey, there's this one shot we haven't been able to comp yet, but we need approval on the edit before we finish that. Everything else shows you what it's going to look like. And I immediately got a call from the client and she was crying and she was like, what can we do about that shot where she's just standing on a green stage? Are we going to be able to fix that? Crying? Like, wow. I mean, almost crying like or furious. I don't remember. I've told this anecdote yeah, too many either, times, yeah. but like okay. in a panic of like, yeah. what are we going to do to fix this? And so like, it's hard to imagine things. And so I think- Did you, you respond? Did you just say per my last email? No, I, I actually said. really like that client. She was super nice. So I like patiently explained it to her. But like- in film, we learn how to do things. So in the future, managers, assistants will learn to tune out AI garbage and scripts because there will be so much of it. But a more interesting tool I would like to see, because like learning to read a script is a skill, is I would love to see a, a, a tool that automatically uses AI to generate an animatic so that you can be watching an animatic oh, yeah. of your script. That's a good call. Because that is also like a useful tool for screenwriters where you can watch the movie and see how it plays out and then change your screenwriting things and, and do the animatic. And I bet you some We need that Pixar, for storyboarding and visual. There's a lot of great ways you could apply that. You know, someone at Pixar where, has where, to already be building yeah. that. I'm going to assume. Yeah. If, the, if they're not, they should be. Our next story, speaking of things that if they're not, they shouldn't be, this is maybe something... This is something they are, and maybe people think they shouldn't be. A new company called Marriad, which is uh, founded by some VFX artists, is building a tool set to add product placement to classic films. This is a really fascinating test case. And what's funny is like, you know, artic uh, all of the sort of hot takes are like, are they going to add it to Citizen Kane? And it's like, let's be real. Not enough people are watching Citizen Kane for anybody <laughs> to care about adding an ad to Citizen Kane. I mean, Citizen Kane is not our worry here. Like, if you're reaching Citizen Kane, you're reaching it through your purchased Blu-ray or Criterion Collection. The bigger worry is, like, the classics of the last 15 to 20 years that still get a lot of rewatch, right? Like, the... Um, you know, The Departed's, right? Like it is a movie that is still part of the conversation. It's 15 years old. There's not a lot of product placement in it that I remember, but like it would also be a really easy movie to start adding product placement. Like one example that comes to mind, and we're going to use this example throughout, is one of the fun things about The Departed is the entire crew made it a game to see how many X's they could sneak into a the movie. So watch the movie with that in mind, and there are X's everywhere. It's just a game that everybody in the crew is playing, art department's playing, there's shadow X's from lighting department. Like it's a, you know, I'm sure Scorsese had a lot of them planned, but a lot of them were involved. And there's a scene in an abandoned building, and there's X's on every window. And so somebody from our department had to go in every window and tape the X. Because of that, it's going to be really easy to track like instead if like if Pella windows, like if you pass a construction site, usually there's a sticker on the window advertising the window. 
because of those X's, it would be so easy to track in like Pella Windows or whatever other window brand exists. I didn't do my research. I'm sure there are other window brands. I'm sorry, other window brands. I only remember Pella. I don't even know if Pella is good or bad. I just know I see their stickers a lot on new buildings. So like- They have good branding. Yeah, they have great branding and it's often on windows. And so like, this is the kind of movie where that's a debate because you're like, it's a, it's a, it's a movie I really like, although none of my friends seem to like. I think it's a great Scorsese movie. It is a filmmaker we take seriously. It is still very much in rotation, and people still watch it and talk about it on the streamers a lot. Is it okay to add monetization by going in and not even taking the X's out, but just adding a little Pella sticker under the X's, um, which would be circles, which would ruin the visual design? I disagree with doing that. But here's the thing. On all of these streaming services, there are tiers. Right. And there are tiers that are like, you know, like on Hulu, you can watch Hulu with ads or without ads and you can pay more for it. And so if the choice becomes, okay, do we want to make the, like, which is more disruptive to the departed? Stopping it every eight minutes so that we can have like a Chevy Tahoe ad or sneaking little product placement into the background. And that's where the gray area is for me. If I'm paying full freight for HBO Max, I want to watch the departed with no ads. Right. That's what I'm paying my $15.99 a month for. But if it's the free tier and the choice becomes interrupting the narrative flow in order to insert these ads awkwardly into the middle in a way that completely breaks the rhythm and the pacing or sneaking ads in the background, that's where I actually think sneaking ads in the background, if done tastefully, is more true to the artist's work. Bold take, bring the hate on Twitter. I mean, yeah, I I like it. I think that, What's funny, and I think the Citizen Kane reference at the beginning of the article on No Film School, if you can find the tweet, I think BBC, that's who we picked up. We aggregated them, and I think BBC tweeted. And I think then, you know, people in the comedy Twitter world went nuts on it and just pulled out every, you know, still from a classic movie, and like they're all very funny. And one that just sticks out in my mind was like Marlon Brando and on the waterfront. And he was like, I could have been a contender. I could have saved $20 at progressive insurance or something like that. (laughs) There's just like a lot of those jokes flying around on Twitter that were funny that obviously are not likely how this would work. It's just was the low hanging fruit. And I think that you're right. Well, a couple things. One, um, monetizing the art form of film and television is is not new and is necessary. And so if it's product placement, like, uh, you know, someone's drinking a Coke and that's part of the deal instead of just drinking a can of nothing. And then it changes the next time someone buys the licensing rights on that. It's just kind of like, you know, baseball stadiums have naming rights they sell now. And when you watch a basketball game, there's a green screen element, I don't even know what you call it, that changes ads based on who buys the ad. Like they they superimpose an ad that's sitting there that that is only visible to the viewer on TV. It's not it's not a physical ad that's present. So these kinds of ways of like sneak because why? Well people skip commercials. And so when we talk when you talk about Charles things like uh interrupting the narrative flow, all I can think about is people who are a generation older than Charles and I, and even Charles and I to some extent. I know there are people even older than us, Charles, that still exist, but they would talk about watching a movie on TV and always, so, you know, movies used to come out in a theater once 
and probably never again. But a lot of people grew up loving movies because they saw them on like the movie channel. There was like one channel where you could watch movies and they would play with commercials. So that was how people experienced it. Is that the ideal way to experience a movie? No. On like a tiny little TV in 1961, black and white, if it was maybe originally in color and bunny ears and blah, 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 and a commercial. But that's how they made money and how they kept it going. And that's how a lot of people fell in love with these stories. And what is my point is just, I'm kind of with you, Charles. Like if this is the way to make a free tier on HBO Max and more people have access and more people watch, like I thought where you were going with Citizen Kane was like, if people are watching Citizen Kane and see, because there's an ad in it, that's a good problem to have. Maybe Citizen Kane is is earning, is becomes more valuable. And so, you know, this is that intersection of art and commerce that film lies at the heart of and television. And I think that we have to be realistic that if we are happy, happily skipping commercials and other ways that, that this business is monetized, we should expect it to sneak it in different places. I remember once, like, again, sports, but they talked about putting logos on uniforms. And it was like, is it going to be like NASCAR where the cars are covered in ads? Yeah, well, that might be one of the ways to to sell some, to, to get some income. You know, that's how it works. Yeah. And I mean, for me, it's like, as long as there is a way I can opt out, which they've been good about so far, right? Like Hulu, there's always a paid, t- you know, like there's no free tier in HBO Max. You're only getting fancy stuff. Although even HBO Max, I guarantee you there's product placement in a lot of their TV shows that we might not know about. And then a lot of the movies they license had product placement originally. So even though, right, it's, right, yeah. you know, like I was just thinking about Moonstruck and like, you know, the there's a Benson and Hedges cigarette ad in the back of a magazine that they're reading in Moonstruck. And like, you know, the flower in the um, bakery is sunburst spring wheat flower. And like, you know, there's a, there's a Quaker Oats box on the table. So like, if I don't know who else makes oats, if Catholic oats wants to get in and make, I don't know if there's a Catholic <laughs> oats, but there's a Quaker oats, maybe there's a shaker oats, um, wants to get in and, and shift it up. And that brings more revenue to Jim Shanley, or, um, sorry, not Jim Shanley, John Patrick Shanley. Uh, if that brings more revenue to John Patrick Shanley, um, who wrote a great script for Moonstruck or the heirs of Norman Jewison, uh, um, then okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm not as up in arms about this. As I guess, and you're not either, so maybe we're fine. Um, no, I, yeah, I just I think it's I think it'll make sense. In a, I think that we have to accept that this is always happening. There's always a purer version that may be harder to get. There's always likely to be some like like less pure version that is being monetized somehow, and that's just how all things go. Um, that's how no film school goes. Like there's there's ads. I mean that that's how things work. In this world, a lot of times, like you have to create an advertisement. Like we probably have an ad break running soon, right? Cut to ad break. <laughs> your career in virtual production starts here and now. Earn your spot on tomorrow's set with Synapse Virtual Production in LA by enrolling in RIT's immersive 10 day course this June. An exclusive experience in LA. You'll get the foundation you need to grow your career in a virtual production studio, the kind behind the groundbreaking effects seen in Disney's The Mandalorian and Marvel's Avenger films. Limited seats are available. Learn more and enrol today at vpritcertified.education. 
That's vp.ritcertified.education. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Up next for Ask No Film School, Al Pertle, which is a great name. Al Pertle asks, what are the odds of directing your first movie from your first script? Granted, it's a great script, specifically the horror genre. So first off, huge fan of your self-confidence. It is a good quality. It will treat you well in life. Um, It's tricky because your first script, like you've never written anything before. I'm glad you think it is great. I hope it is great. Often, in my experience in life, you have to do things a couple of times to get good at them. So I would say your first step is giving the script to some people you trust to give you their honest appraisal on whether it is ready. In terms of your odds of directing that movie, it depends on what you mean by directing that movie. Like if it's a horror script and you can just go out and do it for $10,000 with your friends, the odds are really good. You're going to make that movie because you can just go out and do it for $10,000 with your friends. But then the odds become like, what are the odds people are going to see it? And it's going to get major distribution and a marketing push and become a thing. And those odds are small, but not impossible, right? The first paranormal activity, uh, the relic short, all of these things, like those odds are good. I think what you are asking is, what are the odds I can get someone else to give me the a substantial budget to make this and then market it and turn it out as a movie? And unfortunately, I have to say those are really small. It is not impossible. <laughs> there are movies that like someone wrote a script. They put it up on the blacklist. Someone loves it. Like within a year it's made. I mean, there was a story covered on um, going around last week where someone made a short during the pandemic that's all set in one bedroom and this short went to South by Southwest. It's a horror short. And uh, it has now been announced that Timur Makhbunbov is, is, has bought the rights to the short and will be making the movie and it will be shot this year and come out next year. So like it, it happens. I'm not going to say it's zero odds. I'm, I'm also not going to say the odds are good because I don't know how many shorts were made during COVID that were shot in one person's bedroom that had a horror theme but I would venture a guess that it's between 1,000 and 10,000 at least. <laughs> and and one of them- Timur... 500,000, who knows? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. And one of them was good enough to get into South By and then get seen by Timur uh, Makbemtov and, and is getting turned into a feature and that's amazing. But even that one, the concept will be then directed by a more experienced director. So the odds are not great, they're not zero, but the odds are low. I would say- one of the biggest mistakes I see young filmmakers make is they write a script and it is solid. And I've actually read solid scripts where I'm like, this script is solid. You should go make this. And then while trying to get it made, they don't write a second script and a third script. And an important thing to remember is you would like a whole big career. And when you're making this movie, you won't be writing your next one. But when you're done making this movie, you'll want your next one ready to go. So you should probably spend the, like, you should get going on trying to get it made. 
You should get it up on the blacklist. You should try and find representation. You should enter it to script contest. You should get moving. It is possible you could get to make it with a real budget. Very rare, possible. But at the same time, start writing the next script. Start an idea bank. Start doing all those things to keep moving towards the next thing. That's my take. George? Yeah, this is a tough one. Um, It's certainly... You know, what I think of is there are a lot of filmmakers who write their directorial debut. So if you're thinking more specifically about, is there a chance that I'll be able to direct a script I wrote as my feature directorial debut? Absolutely. I mean, I spoke to somebody the other day who did that. Uh, It's Concrete Cowboy on Netflix. And I spoke to um, Ricky Staub about the film uh, on this podcast, shameless plug. But you know, that's not what you're talking about. I don't think you're really, I think you're specifically talking about how, and that's pretty unlikely by the way, but you're specifically talking about the first script you write, right, Charles? That's, that's more what we're taking from this. That's like, that feels like, I don't know. I don't know how to quantify the odds on that. It seems crazy to me because the first thing you write who is it who said, was it Hemingway? The first draft of everything is shit or something. But it's like, I think even the first, the the 10th draft of the very first thing feels like there's just so much room to grow. And I think that we make a mistake in this industry of thinking that first, or we, we prioritize youth firstness over sometimes practice, progression, process, anything you want to do well, you need to do many times, probably. The best work comes from, I think, often people, I think, you know, maybe Orson Welles is part of the problem, but but when you think, because well, we've talked about Citizen Kane early, notoriously young, like first feature, but Orson Welles spent, was a prodigy, and he'd also spent a long time doing radio plays and theater, so he was not novice at crafting stories, staging things, um, all that stuff. So there's something to me about the question, which I, it's a great question, but there's something about this, the formulation of it that makes me think, I don't know if it's even a good idea to think about it in terms of like the first thing should be like a step in a long journey of constantly making new things and getting better. And whether that's writing or I think whatever you do in life, like it's a process of discovering what works, what doesn't, what the marketplace responds to, what you need to get better at, what you like doing and don't. And, you know, that's a lifetime journey where successes and failures come along the way. But I think the very first screenplay, feature screenplay you finish being something you direct, unless you're funding it yourself or you find somebody, it's very unlikely to get funded by, you know, a major studio. And I know from first and secondhand experience, um, not just people I've worked with, but my own experience, people I've known who've had various levels of success, you could have something hot, like a short or a pitch or a viral video or something. And you can go around and you can hear, and he, people will say like, oh, you got to write the script, like spec out the feature. And then you will take that feature out and then you will pitch it. And then maybe you'll get past that point and people will say, this feature is great. We love it. The odds they're going to want you to direct it and spend a lot of money are like pretty much none because they need somebody in the room who has experience. Like you could pitch the greatest TV show idea ever 
and I know we're switching from film to TV, but they're going to love the idea and say like, okay, let's find you a real showrunner because we're not handing the reins to you because you've never been in a writer's room before. <laughs> so that's kind of how these things go. All right. And up next in tech news, we're going to be talking about Dynascore, which is a killer name. Yeah. Very excited to have John Broad on here. John, Is that the correct pronunciation, John? That is. Uh, and actually, I'm hoping Christina uh, Corona, that's the correct pronunciation, will join us as well. Cool. Um, well, we can get, why don't we get started? Um, and if she pops in, we can just kind of incorporate her. Uh, but like, yeah, we, we are excited to talk about Dinosaur. I've been wanting to get you on for a while, John, and we've been trying to find a way to a scheduling, a way to make it work. But tell us, I guess you could start off by just telling us and our audience. We, I know, um, and Charles and I have, have taken a, a little tour around the site, but tell us about Dinosaur. Cool. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having us and me. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, so Dinosaur is the world's first dynamic music engine. Uh, and the name, thank you for the, the the kudos on the name. The name is actually a combination of dynamic and score, Dynascore. And, and let me sort of set up the problem. I, I think, you know, your audience knows more than most that video has become the most important storytelling medium um, and that music is a critical piece of that storytelling. But I think the problem that we're trying to solve is that stock music um, is hard to work with. It doesn't necessarily fit your video. It's um, static, right? So as you edit your video, the music doesn't edit. Um, it's expensive, it's archaic, uh, and uh, from a licensing standpoint, and perhaps most importantly, it inhibits, inhibits creativity. It's hard to experiment. And so, you know, most creators are forced to actually lay down a stock music track first and then create their video to it. And we think that's completely backwards. You shouldn't have to fit your video to their music. Their music should fit your video. And if you think about it, that's the way it works if you can afford a personal composer, right? If you're Steven Spielberg, you shoot a beautiful video and then you hire John Williams to uh, compose a score that perfectly fits your video. Um, and we want to bring this basic process and workflow to all creators and projects, regardless of their budget. That is awesome. Uh, I was just looking around the site and like, you know, there's some other tools that allow sort of a customization, but, you know, bringing the automatic customization of the score to, to the playing field is really cool. One of the questions I wanted to ask that I didn't really see covered in your website is like, how much analysis of the content of the video is going on? Are you just looking at edit points? Are you analyzing like this is a wide shot and this is a close up? Or like, what are the things that are going into sort of customizing the score for the edit? So that's a great question. So we actually currently in V1, and we just launched a week and a half ago, don't analyze the video itself, right? So the dynamic nature of this comes in with the creator telling the Dynascore engine what it wants, right? Ah. So it's, it starts by saying, look, and this is in contrast to a stock music library where you rifle through sort of existing things and try to find something that fits. So you start by saying, uh, I want something, I want a certain genre or subgenre or feeling or mood. Um, and then you find that and you can sample a bunch of compositions uh, that fit that. And then you say, okay, my video is 47 seconds long. So I want this, uh, I want a 47 second version of this. And then I have cuts or uh, at certain frames. And I, so I want a musical transition to match those frames. 
uh, and maybe I want a pause or a two second pause or a five second pause and you can um, add all these things. And then I want the ending to have a crescendo and I want it to start here and sort of end there with a big boom where maybe a logo comes on and then you hit hatch track. Uh, and then uh, within a minute, Dynascore actually generates a bespoke, unique track that both fits those uh, inputs that you noted and also is musically coherent and beautiful. And now, but having said that, in particularly in our Premiere Pro um, extension, if you then on your timeline edit your video, say you take out you know a, a scene or a handful of seconds, the uh, markers within the Dynascore will dynamically adjust to reflect the um, the cut the changes that you've made in the video, and then you simply rehatch a track. And again, in another minute, you'll have something that perfectly matches uh, your new edit. Got it. So it's dynamic in the creation of the music, but you're still in control in the driver's seat. Correct. That's that's exactly right. Um, and and also, I, you know, it's probably worth uh, talking about the AI here as well, right? Because we we combine. I think the sort of magic of Dynascore is that we combine. It's at the intersection of art and science, or in this case, professional music and advanced AI. So we combine handcrafted professional music with advanced AI to dynamically generate those custom tracks that perfectly sync. This is not AI-generated music. We think, and, and we actually started that way, um, having the AI try to create the music, and we just didn't like it. And it's, you know, it, it sort of sounds as the way a lot of AI-generated music startups sound, which is sort of tinny and non-emotional. And, and that was a big aha moment for us that, no, no, humans are great at writing music and composing music. They bring the emotional resonance Let's let humans do that and let's let AI do what it's good at. In this case, um, deconstructing a composition and then reconstructing it to both meet the requirements of the creator and to ensure great music. All I can think when I think about it, and I know there are so many aspects to it, but like, I just remember being younger and trying to you know, cut a montage to a piece of music. And I'm not even like, this is before I would have had any interest in like selling. It was just literally trying to cut something to a piece of music. And if if it didn't quite work and I had to edit the music in, you know, probably Final Cut back then, like to change the way the the, the score went to fit like at a, at a bar or at a something just so it could fit my edit because my edit needed to be a certain thing. And the idea of that being an automatic thing is like, oh, think of all the time that I wasted. <laughs> that, that, that is the pain point, right? And and so you have those um, yourself, and then you all, they also get thrust upon you in the form of a musical note, right? The dreaded musical note. The, the client or the boss comes down and says, oh, could you just change this little thing? You know, and they don't understand how excruciating that is. And so we have made that dreadful process a lot less dreadful and what used to take hours and hours and hours now takes a matter of a minute. Uh, so that's where we're incredibly excited about this technology. That is awesome. Can you tell us at all about like what your roadmap for next steps of what sort of, I mean, you've been out for a week and a half. Right. As you start looking at, you know, your roadmap, like where, where do you think the next steps might be or is it too early to even think about that? Also, I just want to jump in. I, I see uh, Christina Corona is also here. I'm not Hello. sure if she's on mute. Hey, uh, so hey, I want to work you in too if you have things to add as we go. 
um, before we wrap up. <laughs> Certainly, <Yeah. laughs> yeah. Christina is our head of film, uh, so is really uh, seeped in the Premiere Pro extension and sort of you know what this means for videographers. So, Charles, I, I think we think about the the roadmap in three different ways. The first is even more um, tools uh, for the creators. Um, so it's it's one thing to say I want a musical transition at a certain frame. It's another thing to say. And I want that transition to have a certain emotion, right? I want it to be sad or happy or exciting. And so so that's something uh, we're working on. Um, The other thing we're working on is allowing you to bring your own Dynascore. So currently you select from our vast number of compositions and genres, but we think it would be really uh, great if people could bring their own music and then we could sort of automatically uh, dinoscorize it for them. And then the third is about accessibility, right? So we currently have a desktop app, which you can use on you know Mac or PC. We have an incredible uh, Adobe Premiere Pro extension, uh, but we want to bring this to, to more places, right? So uh, maybe it's Final Cut Pro and maybe it's some others. So we're, those are the three components to the roadmap as we kind of think out in the the medium term. Awesome. So when you're talking about bringing your own, you're talking about like if you do a MIDI composition, bringing that MIDI composition in and then using Dynascore to customize it, or you're talking about like a final composition? To be determined. Um, so we, we will uh, we'll have more information on that in the weeks and months ahead. Awesome. And then did we want to talk a little bit about the integration with Premiere? Definitely. Um, well, you know, as John said, you know, I'm I'm pretty much seeped in Premiere. I live in Premiere myself personally. So it was really important to us. And I think John touched on this where we wanted to create it in a way where you didn't have to leave your workflow to find and add and edit music to your work. And so that's basically what a Premiere Pro user can do is essentially search for a track, put it in your your sequence, put the markers there and then hatch it and you can adjust it right there in the timeline. So that's like, that's such a time saver for me and for everyone who's using it that that's probably the coolest thing to me. And is Premiere the only tool, I'm curious about other software, other post-production software and if you have some relationship, what the dynamic is like with those. Yeah, so right now we we only have an extension in Premiere, but the app is really cool because you can you will be able to edit at a frame level shortly. And so like you can just do everything you need in the app and then import it to Final Cut or Avid or whatever you you're using. I see. So you just use it in the Dynascore app. Like if I'm a Final Cut person and not a Premiere person, it doesn't mean I can't do this. It's just an additional exactly. step. Exactly. I see. And that, that's exactly what the desktop app is for uh, at this point. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. I mean, is are... there anything else you guys want to let us know about it? I mean, I was we've got you here, and we're we're curious, or like, yeah. I, I mean, I think there's a couple other things I would say. Um, the first is that every track is royalty free and unrestricted, completely unrestricted. You can use uh, Dynascore tracks wherever you'd like, wh- whenever you'd like, and for as long as you'd like. And I would also, the, the other thing I would say is how affordable this is. You know, we have a monthly subscription model with pricing based on volume, but all plans um, are less than a dollar a track. 
so really affordable. We really want to make this accessible. We want to sort of democratize, you know, personal composers and, and make sure that that dynamic music is accessible for everybody. And we even have actually a 14-day free trial, which you can access right now. Just go to dinoscore.com and, you know, no credit card needed. Literally just start your two-week free trial. You get 20 free hatches and, uh, and check it out. So every track, so I'm, yeah, I'm curious about this part and I'm, I'm sure users are saying I get like the individual plan, which is $19 a month and I can use up to 20 tracks a month. Um, they're all royalty free and I can pick those 20 per month from the entire library you provide. Correct. 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 And, and I can, can I use 20 new ones the next month? And still have the 20 from the prior month? Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean by using them as long as you want, right? So if you have put them into a video, that video can live forever, uh, unrestricted and without royalties. Is there a, this is like the producer in me asking, (laughs) is there a like, as far as like rights release and YouTube and stuff like that, like, is there something I need to do or documentate or anything beyond just like, is this something come with my Dinosaur account just like so no one can file a claim against my YouTube video that's up if I monetize it? That sort of thing. Yeah, that's all in our terms and, and services. Um, again, because we have professional composers that we have hired and we have paid to generate these compositions, we own them all completely and outright, and therefore can pass them along to our users on a royalty-free, unrestricted basis. Are you guys continuing to have them create more? Like, is the library always growing? Yeah. So we've got about a thousand compositions um, today. And, you know, as I mentioned in, in every sort of logical genre from rock. Oh, and, I, and- I see on the website, actually need more than a thousand tracks, <laughs> contact us for custom. <laughs> so, be, so you could do a custom, like if someone for whatever reason needs like a thousand and two tracks or something. <laughs> well, yeah, well, that, we'll talk about that in a second. That's that, uh, we also have an API, which is pretty cool. But so, so we've got these thousand compositions in all the logical genres, right? from dance and EDM to cinematic, and we're making more every week. But I think what's interesting here is because we're a music engine and the creator chooses the elements of the track, right? The length, the where the musical transitions are, the endings, the pauses, every track is bespoke, right? It's, it's unique right, to right. that particular yeah. composition. So we really, if you think about it, it's sort of an, essentially an unlimited number of tracks, so that's the way we think about it. But but I would also, so your other point, which gets to the accessibility of this, is that in addition to the desktop app and the Premiere Pro extension, we also have a developer API. And what that is, is it a lot, right? So, so there have been an explosion of video creation and sharing apps that have come out, right? It, they help people create videos, they give you templates, they give you fonts, they give you you ways of sharing. And each of those apps needs the ability to add music to the video. And so our Dinoscore API includes all of the features of our app and our Premiere Pro extension and and app creators can leverage that API to um, infuse uh, their app with Dinoscore's dynamic music, right? And so we we think about our goal is music as a service. We want to be able to provide dynamic music everywhere you want it, whether it's a third-party app, whether it's ultimately uh, Final Cut Pro, certainly currently Adobe Premiere Pro, a desktop app, an iPhone app, which we're working on, et cetera. 
Well, it's really cool. Um, I'm yeah. glad you guys could come on and answer some questions for us about it. And uh, I'll be curious to know uh, if our community uses it and what they think of it and uh, what you guys do next. Well, thanks. We love feedback. We love your community, first of all. It is exactly uh, you know, who we built this for. Um, and we love feedback. So uh, people can email me directly at john at wonder.inc or through the, through the app. Nice. Yeah, I can't wait to play with it. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. We really appreciate you having us on and, um, and this opportunity. Thank you. All right. Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Charles Hane, C-H-A-R-L-E-S-H-A-I-N-E. And uh, yeah, I, you know, watch, watch my shows on Amazon Prime. And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. You can find everything we talked about and more at nofilmschool.com. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. Leave a comment. Let us know what you think. Definitely, if you use Dinoscore, let us know what you think of it. And uh, I want to let everybody know, again, about our gear guides. We have a lot of thorough buyer's guides if you're looking to buy gear. You can find it at the top of our homepage at nofilmschool.com, or if you go all the way to the bottom, you can find it under sections, gear guides. It's the first one, and we have lists of things you can research if you want full-frame cameras, if you want mirrorless cameras, if you want documentary cameras, if you want drones, whatever you want. We've reviewed a bunch of options and presented you with what we think are the best ones based on use case. Thanks so much for listening. 